we still and know that you are God. Uh, Psalm 46, the psalmist cries out at the end of saying that God is our strength and our refuge, our ever-present help in time of trouble. He says, be silent, God says, and know that I am God. I will be honoured by every nation. I will be honoured throughout the world. The Lord Almighty is here among us. The God of Israel is our fortress. People who hurry, people who never slow down, find it hard to be still before the Lord. They find it hard to remember the things that he's done because they're so busy doing that it's rare that they will remember and stop and pause and be still. They find it hard, therefore, to remember to know that God is God and they, we, are human beings. God is uh, almighty, all-powerful, uh, always present, all-knowing. Uh, there is no one like God. And yet we are not all-powerful. We're limited. Our knowledge is just uh, minuscule compared to all knowledge. And that we can't be in more than one places at the same time, although we try to be. <laughs> By pausing and being still and remembering, it does our souls good. It does our hearts good. And so Jesus, on the night before he was crucified, on the night when he was betrayed, he, he shared a meal with his disciples and he gave them bread and he gave them a cup and he gave it to them. And as they were eating, after they had been served, he said, he said do this in remembrance of me. And here we are so many years later, gathered together, God's people around this table, doing this, sharing the cup and the bread in remembrance of Jesus. What, what do we remember as we gather around here, as we pause, as we be still together? We remember the cup, the blood is represented in the cup. The blood of Jesus, which was shed on the cross. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And Jesus was not just a, like the lamb in the Old Testament that was slaughtered while they placed hands on it and the sin was transferred onto the lamb. Jesus was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world, the once for always lamb that died in our place. And the bread represents his body which was bruised and which died on the cross so that we could have life. Jesus rose again on the third day, conquering death and sin. And now it's through having a relationship with Jesus Christ that we are forgiven. Our sin, the penalty for that is taken upon Jesus Christ as he died. That's why it says in uh, 1 Peter, it says, 
Christ also suffered when he died for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners that he might bring us safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit as we're still today. What might we remember? Well, as you look back on the past year and you think about the things that, the hurts that you face, some of them were things that weren't, were beyond your control. But some of them were things where you acted disobediently and caused hurt to people. You can remember and reflect that Christ has forgiven you as you put your trust in him. As you confess those to him, he's able to forgive you and make you right before God again. Why don't we, as we now come to this moment where Alan's going to lead us in prayer, why don't we just spend some moments of quietness together, remembering all the things that Christ has forgiven us, that he's forgiven us from the sin that we have uh, committed. And maybe in these moments, if there are things that God reminds you of, that you would just confess them and ask his forgiveness, giving thanks for Christ's death. Let's just spend a few moments pausing, being still together. Father, we again this morning give you thanks that we can come together and for this in this privileged position of meeting around this table as your people. Loving Father, we, we thank you for this sacred time when we remember again, as your word so rightly tells us, that um, we come together and remember just what you did on the cross so long ago. We do that again this morning, Lord, and we do it with thankful hearts. And we just pray, Lord, that as we remember afresh the sacrifice that was made on our behalf, we'll be thankful. But we remember just why we're here today and what we're doing right at this moment in this service. Your word again tells us where to do this in remembrance of you. And we do that this morning. Lord, we, we give thanks for these um, emblems that are before us. We give thanks for the bread, Lord, that's the um, emblem of your broken body on the cross and for the cup, the emblem of your shed blood. We thank you again, Lord, and pray that as we partake together in fellowship around this table this morning, you'll bless us and be with us and give us the guidance we need in our daily lives as well. And so we commit this time to you with thankfulness in our hearts, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's with great thanks that we now participate together. The table is open to all who love Jesus. And uh, it's a table where we remember what Jesus has done. And if you know him, if you've uh, put your trust in him, if this morning you love him, please um, you feel free to take part in this. If you don't, please, if you don't know what Jesus has done or understand that yet, just uh, please feel free to let the plate go past. We'll uh, share together as you're served the uh, cup, why don't you retain that and we'll have that together. That's a sign that 
uh, all those that Christ that have put their trust in Christ are part of His body, the church, the family of God, and we'll uh, drink together, and remembering that. And then as you serve the bread, take that and eat that as you're served, remembering and giving thanks that Christ died for you. Let's share together this meal. Grace to you all and peace. Would you join me in a reading from the scriptures as we begin today? Would you turn with me uh, to Gospel of John, chapter 13? I'm just going to read a couple of verses from that and then turn to chapter 15. So John chapter 13, beginning at verse 31. Jesus begins these sayings in the context of instituting communion, the Lord's Supper. It was indeed the night that Jesus was betrayed. And Judas Iscariot had just left to go and betray Jesus. And Jesus said these things. He said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Now will you turn with me to chapter 15. Jesus said, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me 
and my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. Let's pray together. Father, as we read the words of our Lord Jesus, we ask that you would inspire us, transform us, take us captive, that every thought may be a slave to Jesus, every inclination of our hearts renewed to be an inclination inspired by our Lord Jesus, that we may be people who bear fruit that lasts to the glory of Jesus our Lord. Father, so we ask now, speak and let us hear. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Off to a flying start. I wonder, have you ever wondered how it is that we can actually soar on eagles' wings? How is it that we can rise out of the mire and go up higher? I believe there is a fairly simple and straightforward process for us to go through. Hello, that's not the right picture. Something's gone wrong there. I'll try going backwards. No, it's gone to the wrong program. Never mind. You know, some people say uh, interesting things. There was a, a, a poster I saw on an office not far away from where my office is at work and the person had written on their poster, it's hard to soar like an eagle when you're surrounded by turkeys. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they had all those kinds of sayings. But I want to say this. Thanks for that. <laughs> Let's see if what happens here. Do you want to try it? Well, let me see if you can get it to work. There we go. Which one? <laughs> Which, one? Which one are you pressing? Yeah, okay. That's great. I was pressing the wrong button. It's because I haven't got my glasses on. I can't see without them. You can't uh, 
Yeah, but I want to say something like this. It's impossible to soar like an eagle when you think like a grub. And how do we get grubby thinking? How do we get admired? I think grubby thinking comes from being mired in the way the world thinks. I think it happens to us because we spend so much time being exposed to the ways of the world, to the spirit of the age, Paul calls it. In every age, there's a kind of um, a spirit, there's a way of thinking, there's an attitude that can typify that age. We talk about things like modernism, postmodernism, generation X, generation Y, but really that's saying the same thing, that there's a way of thinking that is common and our thinking can become grubby and mired when we let our thinking be admired in the spirit, in the spirit of the age. And here's a truth that may be fairly uncomfortable for us. If we spend long enough in an environment, we certainly will be changed by it. In the military, we know this and understand it really well. When I was at ADFA, uh, as a chaplain to the, uh, ADFA chaplain, uh, to the college ADFA, we used to take new recruits, young men and women who want to be officers in the Army, the Navy or the Air Force, and we would begin a process of enculturating them, filling them with a spirit, if I can put it this way, with the ideas, the ideals and even the ideologies that Defence wanted. And we achieved that by taking them out of their normal place and putting them in a military environment and not letting them out of that military environment for weeks and weeks and weeks. We do the same thing at Kapuka. The same thing is done at Sale. The same thing is done at Creswell with the Navy. Everywhere, these young people are brought in and they're enmeshed in this culture and they are changed by it. And there's a picture there of a graduated 2004 graduation class from Duntroon. And I look at the faces of those young people there and there's a number that I know. And it's amazing to see them in that photograph remembering what it was like when they first came into ADFA. To see them as, as they were then. They were children. They were scared. They had no confidence. They didn't have any military bearing. And there they are, graduating as young men and women officers in the Australian Army. But have you ever wondered how much time we're exposed to the spirit of the age, to its ideas, to its ideals, to its ideologies? We have the internet and all kinds of information comes to us unfiltered often through that. We're also exposed to it through music. And how often are we listening to music and not even aware of what is the spirit, what is the idea, the ideal, the ideology that's in it. And of course there's the television. Hours and hours and hours people can spend in front of a television and never ask the question, what's the message? And then of course there's film and theatre as well. What are the ideas that lie at the heart of these things? What are the ideals? What are the ideologies? Who do they represent? 
so much of what we're exposed to is the grubby mire of the spirit of the age, a spirit that is in enmity with God and a spirit which is at enmity with our real needs as human beings. There are, in fact, strange currents flowing. Strange currents flowing. But I want to speak to a reality that might liberate us. And it might liberate us from so many of the trials and turmoils that we face. Because the spirit of the age tells us one thing and the spirit of God says something else. And I believe if we listen to what God is saying to us, we can be released and have a new lease on life in terms of our relationships particularly. There are beliefs and attitudes that are conflicted and confusing, utterly poisonous to our souls. And then there is the ideas, the ideals, the truth of the Spirit of God that makes us whole. Is there a secret to disarming strife and conflict? You know, Sandy was talking about the images. Uh, so many of the images of the last few years have been images of war, haven't they? Of strife between nations, strife between peoples, strife between religious groups, hatred and violence. I want to say to you today, I believe that our scripture text holds the key for us to disarming those conflicts, disempowering them entirely. And of course we know that in families there's strife and difficulty. We know we can fight and our relationships can be poisoned. I believe that our scripture today holds the secret for us for wisdom, for power, for transformation. And it's what I want to call today, if you will let me, the love commandment. The love commandment. To speak of love, I guess, as I see it, is a life's work. To speak of God's love will be the joy of eternal life for us. Today as I do this, I'm really conscious as I want to speak about the love commandment and the power that may release us if we will hear it. That I don't have the words to express the love of God powerfully enough. I don't have a grasp deep enough. And so I certainly can't speak to all that the love commandment is today. I can't find the words in myself to express the majesty and the beauty of God's love for us. But I believe something of what I might say will liberate us. I propose or I want to examine just one aspect, if you'll let me do that, of the love commandment today. When we think of love, when we think of God's love, when we think of our love, there's just one thing I want to speak to today. And that is striving. We often hear that we ought to let go and let God and that's a truth that we need to grasp. But there's a dimension within the Christian faith where we hold things in tension. There's letting go and letting God but at the same time we're told to strive. Paul tells us that we are saved by faith 
And then James says, yes, but you have to have works with it. So we hold these things in tension. And I want to speak, if you will let me today, to striving. What do I mean, striving? When we, when we really love something, we're impelled to strive for it in some way. There's uh, the craftsman who loves his woodwork. I love wood turning. It's a great pastime. It's an expensive pastime too, particularly if you want to buy a nice wood. But I love it. Because I love wood turning, I like to strive. I want to strive so that my skills can increase. I go onto the internet and I look at these wonderful wood turning sites that are there and the instructions and I buy the books and I read things and I listen to people. I want to soak up information. I strive to find new ways of doing things. I strive to get the right tools. I strive to get myself set up and get the timber right so that I can get a really nice piece of art out of the whole thing. Because I love doing it, I strive for it in some way. What's the thing that you're passionate about doing? And I'll guarantee in some way you strive for that thing, whatever it is. And of course, it's almost too obvious to say, isn't it? When we fall in love, we strive. Courtship's all about striving. It's all about striving, first of all, to get recognised by the one that we are enamoured of. And then we strive to build a relationship. We strive to engage together. We strive to find the time to engage together. There's the flowers and the dates and all those things and it's great but it is a striving. It is a striving. One of the things that we learn very quickly when we deal with broken and damaged marriages is that very often people actually stop striving. They give up that striving to love one another, that striving for one another, and that is the end of the joy and the peace and the excitement. When we love something, we're impelled in some way to strive for it. These are things that I believe are true. But the world tells us that it's, it's not that... Uh, the world tells us that it's competition that's the best driver of value and improvement. The world tells us that it's competition, striving against others, that brings development, that brings growth. And you know, it's almost believable, isn't it? Because we recognise historically that enormous leaps in science and technology have been achieved during times of war. So many of the technological benefits that we enjoy today are the developments that arose out of conflict. We also recognise that most of the economic developments and advancements have only been achieved in the free economies. And it's almost easy to believe that competition, striving against, is the real driver. And of course, our whole world is filled with this idea of evolution. And Darwin's theory of evolution depends on competition, striving against the other. 
and the story of striving against others to achieve success is seeded right through our culture, through the spirit of our age. I've never ever watched a whole of the program Survivor. Uh, I keep telling people, whenever people talk about it at work, it's not Survivor, it's Killer, because it's all about competition. And as a, as a service person, uh, having been trained in survival things, the one thing you learn about survival is if you compete against the people in your team, you will not survive. It is not survivor, it's killer. But there it is through our whole culture. Competition against the other, striving against the other. That's the secret, they say. And you know, I've seen this striving against the other in so many things, so many places, so many ways. I've seen striving against one another in debates about church music and worship style. I've seen churches tear themselves apart as people strive against one another over these things. I've seen families tear themselves apart for goodness sake over striving against one another about their holidays. We all know those things, don't we? They happen. And I have a confession to make. Rosemary and I are not a couple who have not had fights. <laughs> and as I've reflected on those fights, I realised something about it. And it was a blessing because we're in Zimbabwe and we had a lovely American couple that we worked with in the college. And, you know, every time we went to visit them, any time you spent with, with these two people, Phil and Jean, you came away feeling somehow better, somehow uplifted. It didn't matter if they'd been discussing something spiritual or just had a cup of tea together. And we realised it was because they said positive things to each other and to other people. And it was during one of our fights that I realised what was going on with Rosemary and I in our fighting. We were scoring points against one another. We were striving, if you like, competing for power and for control in our conflict. And I realised the text from Galatians 5 that Paul writes when he says, the entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbour as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Paul tells us that this idea of competing, striving against, will in fact bring destruction. And the question I have to ask is, when will we learn? Striving against each other, competition brings destruction. James wrote these words. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and you covet but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. You do not ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, 
that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You see, James is saying to a church, to Christian people, he wrote this, that what happens is we get into this idea that we need to compete with, against one another, that we need to be those that are acquisitive over and against our uh, other brothers and sisters in the Lord. And it's not about prayer and it's not about godliness. It's about our own pleasures and our own desires. And that striving leads to emptiness. Now let's be realistic. Conflict is real. And we all have conflict in our lives. We all have these moments where there's friction and difficulty. It is part of human nature. But it isn't necessarily a bad thing of itself. All it means is that you have a different idea, a different way of thinking, perhaps different needs. In our political world, we will always have that conflict. I remember a friend of mine many years ago observed that it is important to have an opposition. He said, imagine what government would be like if there was no opposition. Imagine the kinds of laws that would be passed, the kinds of economic ideas that would be in, in place. Imagine what it would be like. Imagine what it would be like if you never had somebody to say, is that really a good idea? Do you think that's the best use of our time, our resources? Imagine if, if you will, those of you that are married, imagine that your spouse never said to you, I'm not sure that's a good idea. Would it really be a good thing? No, of course it wouldn't. We need people to say to us, hey, is that the best use of your time? Is that the best thing we can do? Is that a good idea? Who remembers Dad's Army? That TV show. Can you put your hand up? So the older people will, won't we? Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember Captain Mannering always had these grand ideas? And in the show, there was that one voice, the sergeant. I can't think of his name now. But he used to say, Do you think that's wise? We need that voice. There will always be conflict. Conflict's not bad of itself. It's what we do during conflict that's the bad thing. It's the way we let ourselves be carried away with the I, with selfishness. It's our behaviour during conflict which contaminates it with strife and with turmoil, with rages and passions to satisfy our own base longings. And that contamination flows into our relationships and breeds still more conflict, which is fed again by that contamination. And a cycle of poison sets itself up. It's not the conflict, it's the behaviour during the conflict that's the problem. And it's not the will of God for us to be like this. It's not the will of God for us to compete against one another. It's not the will of God for us to try to score points against one another. That's not the way to soar. That's the way to stay stuck in the mire of the world, the spirit of this age. That's not God's way. Let's turn again to what Jesus said. 
a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then we read, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. What was the command Jesus has just given them? Love one another. Not strive, not fight, not bite, not devour. Love one another. And Jesus continued on in our reading, if you remember it. He spoke to them as being his friends because he revealed all of God's wisdom to them. And then he said these words. I've got them in yellow up there. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Jesus doesn't want us stuck just doing the same stuff as the people of the world. He wants us to get out of that. He wants us to be fruitful, to soar. He wants us to go out of the mire and go higher, to bear fruit that will last and to have our lives of prayer that are powerful lives of prayer. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Do you hear that promise? Whatever you ask in my name. Not maybe, not a bit, not 75% of what you ask, but whatever you ask in my name. We are challenged. We are challenged to rise and to soar on wings as eagles. We are challenged to bear fruit that will last. And in this context... In this context, because Jesus concludes by saying, this is my command, love each other. This is the will of God for us. This is the royal law of God, the law of God most high, that we love because God is love. So how then do striving and loving one another come together? I believe it's really simple. Instead of striving against one another, we need to strive for one another. Can you see the difference that that would bring? Can you imagine the difference in all of our social interactions from international politics right down to what we're going to do for our holidays as a family? Can you imagine how that would be transformed if we could learn to strive for each other, not against each other. If we turned our minds and our hearts and our energies over to striving on behalf of others, no longer clamouring for our power to get what I want, to look to my needs, but to think about what you need, to think about how I can meet your needs. This is striving in love, striving for one another. Let's think about that just for a moment, if you'll let me do it, in terms of church conflict. 
Let's just think, if you will, about church worship styles and music. How could that be transformed? I've seen, as I said, churches tear themselves apart over this. A fellowship sundered, and that's not to the glory of God. You know, it's, it's a reality. Some people like classical music, and they really just don't like modern music. Of course, other people are the other way around entirely. They just don't like classical stuff. There are people who really appreciate the great hymns of the past and others who say we really need to be saying something that's contemporary. And then again, there are people who say, where's the silence? Where's the contemplation? And those needs are exclusive in a sense. If we have the spirit of the age in us, we say, I want my style of worship because I have my needs that I want met. If we have the Spirit of God in us and we are driven by the love commandment and if we strive for one another, instead of me saying, I want modern music and I demand to have that for my needs, I'll be saying, listen, I understand that you love the great hymns of the past. How can I contribute to worship so that your needs are met? And of course your response will be, yes Gary, but I know that you want something that's contemporary and speaks to the modern age. How can we work together so that your needs are met? And so we strive for each other. And then you and I together would say to that person who loves silence and contemplation, how can we work together to build into our worship silence, contemplation? And the fight is gone. It's ended because we're living the royal law of God. Imagine how our church and our lives could soar if we strove for one another instead of against one another your family holiday options. You ever have conflict about that? I know that there are families, people I know who one member loves camping and the other hates it with a passion. And family holidays become strife-ridden things. Just imagine that conversation then where we strove for, not against one another. Imagine, imagine, can you, Government and economics. Imagine international relations driven not by striving and competition against but striving for one another. Just imagine a world transformed. Jesus commanded us to love one another. And it's a command with a promise. He says in the context of living this life of love that then our prayers will be answered. He says then we'll bear fruit that lasts. Then we will glorify God. Then all men will know that we are his disciples. It's a promise command. And Jesus 
gave a demonstration that the disciples didn't get until after the crucifixion and the resurrection. He took off his outer garments, he wrapped himself in a towel, he took a clay bowl and he washed their feet. He became their servant. And it wasn't until after the crucifixion that they really got what this was about. That the Lord Most High, who had the right to demand what he wanted, who had the right to strive for his own glory, laid his own glory aside to be a servant for the sake of others. He strove for them, not against them. His whole energy, his whole passion was for not against. Perhaps by laying aside our pride, by putting off our demands for power and prestige, for stripping off our selfishness, by seeing to the needs of others, we will become a transforming people who bear fruit that lasts. And people will say, look at them. They must be disciples of Jesus. That was Jesus' promise to us. Paul summed it up by saying that our attitude ought to be the same as that of Christ Jesus. You might like to go and read Philippians chapter 2 today before lunch and reflect on the words of Paul as he says to us, we should do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than ourselves, looking not to our own interests only, but also to the interests of others. Our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Jesus promises us, bear fruit that lasts, Bring glory to me if you love one another. And if we remain in his love, God's love will remain in us and we will bear much fruit. Do you worry ever that conflict may be poisoning your life, affecting your relationships, whether that's at home or at work? or in the church? Do you want to begin transforming those relationships? Do you want to soar like an eagle this year, to get out of the mire and rise up higher? I believe one thing, one thing that we can do in this process is to choose to be a disciple who follows the example of Jesus to put off striving against and put on striving for, to put aside selfish interests and ambitions and to become one who loves as Jesus loved. And your witness will be rejuvenated. That's Jesus' promise. All men will know you're my disciples. Your relationships will be restored. That's Jesus' promise. Your prayers will be answered more wonderfully, more powerfully, more gloriously than we've ever expected before.
if, if we love one another. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we hear your royal command that we should love one another as you have loved us. Today, Lord, we have celebrated your love for us in the breaking of bread and the drinking of the cup. As we remember again how you strove on our behalf and broke the power of sin and death for us. And Lord Jesus, we hear again that you call us to love one another, to strive for one another, to rise up out of the mire, to go higher on eagle's wings and to glorify you. So Lord, we pray, remind us, instruct us, teach us and transform us that we may be those who love one another as you have loved us. This we ask, Lord Jesus, for your glory and in your name. Amen. Jonathan, do you want the pulpit?